Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this beautiful, beautiful Sunday evening? David, you know what? I'm feeling ambitious and amphibious. The, the textbook is up on all the major websites, Amazon, Pals, Barnes & Noble. It's a real thing. And I'm excited, and I think that, that uh, my uh, second novel, Private Midnight, has gotten new life as a Hollywood project again. So it's a long and winding road, as anyone who's been involved in this world knows. But you need to be constantly acquiring a target, and I think we have one. So I'm excited at the moment. And, uh, Excellent. Yeah, it's kind of a it, it's a nice balance because I am dealing with thuggery below. Uh, I I think of the the new neighbors as kind of orcs in a, a, a J.R.R. Tolkien sense, and uh, you know you just gotta roll with the punches, go with the flow, and uh, and 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 go to the gun range and and be tactical. You know that's that's my mm-hmm. that's my plan. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, we had a really good weekend. We took a nice hour-long walk around the neighborhood today with the baby and the dog because it was a cool 70 degrees out. And uh, I've been working on a book. I um, was actually uh, inspired to, to write a book based on some media that I'm, I've been consuming lately, and it's been pouring out of me, so I'm accidentally doing NaNoWriMo. Um, oh, cool. I'm keeping it under wraps, all the, what it's about and what I, what I do with it. But it, because I think that that's important to keep the creative spark going. I don't, I don't, I think, you know, you and I in private conversation, I could talk about it and I could tell Rios what I'm working on, but I don't like to uh, announce things anymore because it takes the wind out of the sails. Well, you don't want to do that. You know, what you want to do is rig more sails. That's what my yeah. estranged son says. You know, he's always one to uh, put up a spinnaker in a in a dead dead you know zone of no wind whatsoever, and everyone just goes, "What the what the hell are you doing?" And he just says, "Well, I'm a Solomon Islander, and I don't care what you think." No, that's brilliant though. I like that metaphor a lot as. For somebody who who would think, what's the point of you putting that up when there's, you know, no wind at all? Gosh, that is just a good metaphor. It really doesn't need me to elaborate on it at all. It's very neat and condensed. It works in and of itself. But I'm gonna I'm actually writing that down as we're talking because that's a that's a great way to approach writing in general. Because isn't writing just putting up sails with no wind? It's exactly it what it is. It's exactly what it is. You yeah. know, I mean, it's it, it's it's a faithful form of magic in the most extreme sense, and it's also the you know the the core belief is that your own psychology influences the weather. You know, I yeah. mean. Right. Really, uh, and also it's just smart because uh, do you really want to be straggling out on the foredeck, putting up a spinnaker? You know, it, right. you know when it's really like the wind is really behind you. No, you want to be prepared for that shit. You want to bring that wind to you. You know, believe right. in the wind. Right. Believe in God. Believe in the gods. You know, have mm-hmm. a little faith for fuck's sake. You know. Have a little faith. I love it. No, that is exactly what I needed to hear today. And this is what I hope that our listeners are getting from this as well. As I take some of this stuff in and spit it back out, and Chris and I have these conversations. Uh, so, for example, if I was listening to this podcast and I heard that, I would think, oh, well, there it is. That's exactly what I needed to hear. So thank you for that. That's, that's fantastic. Um, other than that, you know, the baby... The baby mission continues full steam ahead. He is uh, now on all fours and wiggling around. Um, and falling off the bed, that... I hope. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very hard head. He, he's he's taken some spills. and He's, know, he's a sturdy good. young lad. That's what we need. He is sturdy indeed. And he finds uh, Peekaboo very entertaining. 
we recently we watched today an episode of Sesame Street on HBO because they have all 45 seasons of it and you know I try to limit obviously the screen we read a lot of books but Sesame Street is a it's just it's a quality show the music is good I was some of those songs were stuck in my head about uh you know getting boo-boos and going to the doctor I found myself washing dishes and humming the boo-boo song so um that's what and, I'm and actually david you are you actually you you think that you you you've claimed that you can't carry a tune which is not true you do a very fine version of the peekaboo song and i <laughs> I, I think you're more, much more musical than uh than you let on and uh most writers are yeah most writers have, a sen- so. have a sense of music if they're not gifted with the vocal cords you know if the genetics aren't right we understand music it's just through the words that we put out because your writing is very musical. I think everything that I read by your, and, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm glad we got to this because that is exactly putting the finger on what irritates me about modern writing is that people spend so much time focused on plot and characterization and making sure their stories are structured properly, that there's no voice or music in the prose at all. And that's, that's the only thing that I read for. I don't care about plot. I know I know the hero's journey. I've experienced it many, many times, but that's the but that's the framework that you're supposed to hang your own music on, you know? I mean it's not enough to understand verse chorus, verse chorus, bridge chorus. You have to actually make melodies and harmonies and and a, a song that's interesting sonically to listen to. Um and I think that a lot of writers could take one. It's like, well you've oh you understand how to pace a book out good for you where's the voice where are these people's voices at they're they're non-existent it disappears into nothing so anyway minor rant but well look here's the deal once gus is a little bit more underfoot and uh things are a little bit calmer there i mean i do have a new car and uh and i do have like a lot of percussion instruments and i may be coming to your town to do a campfire sort of thing where we put this to a video sort of performance level because I absolutely agree. I, I'm, I'm tired of writing that isn't good at the sentence level, that isn't good at the musical level because I think that is the nature of where all language came from. And I think we have an, a, a duty of, of respect to the people from the caves to, uh, to actually be able to play in tune and in time and to to build syntactical structures that really matter you know mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. matter i mean this idea of like the heroes yeah okay i mean i, I really I, I we all get that um mm-hmm. but you know we're in a crisis point now where we're getting all these really watered down marvel universe myths that you know mm-hmm. these asexual superheroes and these kick-ass babes you know mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. you know have a look at the uh uh the trailer for the 355 which is a new movie coming out in January about women who are uh the best uh intelligence agents from around the world and just tell me if you think that that isn't just pablum nonsense. You just think, oh, I mean, not only are they not sexy, I don't believe any of the fight scenes are real. I, I just don't, you know, look, just come on, stop that nonsense. So we've mm-hmm. got to get back to a, a deeper level of significance at the sentence level, at the musical line level. Um, and that is the world level. I mean, if you're not playing percussion according to Ghanaian level, you know, what, what are you doing, actually? You know, what are exactly. you really doing? Yeah. You know, exactly. you're not doing anything, you know? They're, they're transcribing a movie in their head, but they're not... What, what they should be doing is playing along with the music in their head. Yeah. You know? um, it's it's just it's two it's two different modes i think um definitely food for thought we are going to start off this episode with our segment the week in doom we're going to continue on with that 
for a while, you found some very interesting articles, particularly about the most anxious city in America, which is Seattle. Seattle. And look, Chris, I have friends and family there, and I love, I, I did my graduate work in Seattle. I've got a lot of connections in Seattle, but David knows that I really have a problem with uh, what's going on there now. And I think that all of America and the world should have because it is a complete failure of, of ideology. There's no question about it. It's a, it, it has been part of a defund the police exercise, which they're now trying to recoup. It's, it's got a massive homeless problem. It's got a massive uh, disparity in income issue with Amazon and Microsoft people making millions and other people just falling behind. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a crisis. It, it's a microcosm of, of a problem in America at large. And I think they damn well should be anxious because if I lived there, and when I did live there, I was the writer in residence at Seattle University. I had a nice situation with my family. Um, I met a beautiful woman. I had a lot of things going for me. And yet, I was very anxious. And I live in Las Vegas, which is, and I live above thugs now. And I've got a lot of reasons to be anxious about, you know, my situation. Um, a beautiful place, a beautiful desert environment, you know, so many good things. And I'm on a high with my uh, textbook and a, a new lease of life for my major um, novel idea going to possibly a TV series. And yet... I'm still not as anxious as those people in Seattle. And I think there's a good reason for that. And what is that? What's that reason, do you think? I, I have think, thoughts, too. I, think that, I want to hear yours. I think that they are in a permanent conflict of ideology versus delivery on, on results. Yep. I, I yeah. think that, that, that... It's a detachment from reality, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's fundamentally... You know, and it goes back to Black. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think that there are a lot of nice way, And San Francisco and Portland, I think, and, and Minneapolis and Austin would be in the same category. There are a lot of really good people in these cities. There are a lot of very bright people. But I don't think that they are at, at stone-cold... Uh, rock face, coal face with the problems. And I think they ignore them. I think that they say that, that they don't need the police. Well, frankly, in my neighborhood, I do need the police. You know, I want, I want the police with guns to show up at, at 1 a.m. in the morning because of the neighborhood I live in. And I think that's when, when you call the police, that's kind of what you want. And I don't know where this anti-police sentiment came from. I think that, that, you know, the one, you know, I mean, of course, there have been some uh, really terrible uh, missteps. But Jesus, do you really want to eliminate an institution on that basis? I think you want to perfect that institution and invest more in it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that what, what we're looking at is, is a, a kind of embrace of, uh, well, look at the, uh, the tenants' rights issues now. You know, you, you don't pay any rent and you, you can't be evicted. Well, you know, David, you and Rios could be in a situation not too long from now where your one big investment that you can really understand and manage is, is buying another place and having a tenant in there because you've done that. You've been tenants and you think, well, I can understand mm-hmm. that and I can fix a tap you know, if, if the air conditioner fails, I'll, I'll work that out. I know how to do that. And then suddenly people stop paying rent. And you think, well, no, that's not cool. You know, we've got to protect very middle class, basic working class people struggling up the way they know how. I mean, I don't understand how to invest in the stock market. I never have even when I, when I really had money. I didn't do that. 
I just didn't understand it. I understand real estate, but I don't want someone just getting into a place and, and never paying rent again. And well, they're protected, you know? So I think we've got some real issues about ideology. The difference between people with real, real money and I'm seeing that much more clearly now. I, I need about $250,000 more money than I have to really live the way I would like to in my zone. And, you know, I think, okay, uh, right, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I get that. Um, but on the other hand, I don't want those people who do have that money dictating to me what my situation is and how I behave in my world because they're in another zone, you know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's kind of, uh, I always think of the John Steinbeck quote about embarrassed millionaires. Yeah. Um, and I think that that kind of social ideology that leads to this anxiety trickles down. And so the current embarrassed millionaire is somebody who adopts the the safe and toothless politics of the the rich liberal and kind of parrots what they say, even though it has no material influence or uh, advantage in their own lives. So you end up with just a bunch, you you get the neurosis and you don't even have the money for it. That's, that's sad. Um, The other article that you sent me is about a lack of sex in Hollywood movies. Uh, And this is something that I've been noticing for a while now in this article nails it on the head there's a uh on on a podcast uh, the perfume nationalist the guy jack there he talks about how there's been a lack of sex in movies for a long time and he has a, a funny way of putting it he says you know actors are basically mannequins You're, you just put them in positions to make them look cool and what's cooler than sex and we've entered this puritanical age where we can see somebody's brains get splayed out all over the screen but uh there's apparently something wrong about showing nudity or having a sex scene or what have you. And, uh, it makes movies less interesting. I remember as a kid, uh, kind of still stowing away, a, a recorded, uh, basic instinct tape, right. That I would slip in every once in a while. And those don't exist anymore. You know, the movies like that, that don't exist. We don't get to see anybody naked anymore, which is a bummer. Unless it's in some kind of role where they are fat or, you know, they look kind of gross, then then they'll do the nudity because it's Oscar bait. It's tasteful, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, but you know what I mean. So I, I thought do. that that I thought that this this rising anxiety, this lack of sex in pop culture, uh, which coincides, as the article states, with a sort of rise in people. I think acting sexual or pretending to be sexual with like OnlyFans and um, just their presences on social media indicating that they are sexual beings uh, with no real release. It's it's the it's like a tease across the board um, with with no real no real release involved. so I think I think that those two are intimately related. Also, the rising anxiety combined combined with uh, the sort of bloodless sexlessness, and so the prescriptions for both of these would be again to try try to develop a worldview that actually materially makes sense during your day to day life, and doesn't include fictional characters that you've made up in your head, um, and that is be- what's best for you and your family, and also to uh, and this might seem a little strange, but, you know, go watch some, uh, not porn, but, you know, go watch some movies with some skin in it. This this article names a few, Nine and a Half Weeks, History of Violence. Uh, see if you can see what I'm talking about. Gaspar No, the filmmaker who made Irreversible, which is notorious for having a nine-minute rape scene where the camera doesn't move, um, his in his recent film Climax, which I thought was fantastic, he cast a, a troupe of dancers uh, to play a troupe of dancers that uh, gets locked away in a dance studio on a snowy night, and somebody spikes the punch with some bad acid, and the whole the whole night just goes wrong. It turns into a nightmare, right? And in an interview for that movie, he said that he doesn't even like to watch movies anymore. He prefers watching 
uh, Cirque du Soleil performances because what he likes about film or liked about film was seeing bodies in motion and you don't you don't get that anymore again like he's he's talking about the music and i'm not talking auditory but he's talking about the the musicality of the human body in film and and that's what we're again missing so i don't know watch some old movies well you know i chill out i just checked out uh, a movie which is stupidly called twilight on Amazon Prime, Paul Newman, Susan Sarandon or Sarandon, Gene Hackman, James Garner, and Reese Witherspoon, a young Reese Witherspoon who appears topless at one point. And um, mm-hmm. she's beautiful, small breasts. I mean, she's not like a well-endowed woman, but it's very sexy and it's also very appropriate to the story. You know, it's actually very appropriate to the story. There is that idea. It's not gratuitous mm-hmm. sex. It's just a moment that sort of makes some sense. And I think she's a wonderful actor. And, I mean, it's not a, a really deep, complicated, interesting movie. But how can you miss with those talents involved? Uh, you know, it is, it is a great story, actually. Uh, Twilight and, uh, and and Paul Newman uh, late in the game uh, I think he's 73 when he appears in that he's just he carries the, the weight of it so easily Gene Hackman can only be good Susan Sarandon can only be good and Reese Witherspoon is terrific and I actually really did enjoy looking at her naked breasts I, I thought they were just lovely and I thought it was it was a very well shot um naturally sexy sort of thing that was well done the director gets kudos in my view i think it was not gratuitous at all it was uh, it was just it was just a fine you know simple uh interesting murder mystery kind of of, of show that also <laughs> revealed a lot about the past and how people's relationships develop over time and anyone who's interested, as I am, in the ongoing story of Natalie Wood's death, I think there's something... That's one of my guilty pleasures, David. Uh, I, I just love that story. I can't help it. I mean, it's got Robert Wagner, and who's 91, and Christopher mm-hmm. Walken involved, and it's off the coast of, you know, L.A. and Catalina, and it's, you know, Natalie Wood, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So... But I think there's something in that that just uh, gets us back to things that, you know, let's just have a little fun again with some sex and some murder and drugs. And, you know, why does it all have to be so tense now? You know, I mean, it's tense enough. I mean, what what isn't tense about sex, drugs and murder? You know, come on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and these things act as release mechanisms. They should. I think that, they should. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that talking about these big institutions like Hollywood and the sort of influence that they have on people and when when they alter their content, basically, to fit a sort of moralistic paradigm, a prudish Puritan paradigm, we end up with people who don't really um, have outlets for it. It's not directly related, in, but only related in the sense that we're talking about big institutions. But, you know, you and I have also been talking, and this is how we'll round out the week in Doom, about news organizations and the fact that they are currently at an all-time low in terms of viewer trust and viewership in general. Uh, a real a real crisis point for a lot of news organizations. Which is, and to my mind, absolutely it's what, demonstrable, it's well quantitatively. Yeah. I, I just want to insert that. But, and to my mind, it's well earned because I, I use the um, example of the way that um, ivermectin was portrayed in the news recently, where it uh, was called a horse dewormer, which technically it is, but this is all about framing and the ways in which uh, Russell Brand, of all people, had a good way of putting it about how these uh, drugs are put, are framed pejoratively as horse dewormer or controversial or untested and unproven. Um, there's a lot of editorializing that goes on in the news. And at this point during a pandemic, when people felt like they needed someone to turn to, 
the the sort of bald-faced, uh, nakedly obvious fr- uh, pejorative framing of alternative medicines and over-the-counter slash prescription uh, pre-existing medications that could have been used to treat it. The fact that those were pushed under the rug so forcefully under the under these news programs that would have you know Pfizer ads every commercial break, um, essentially to my mind, for the purpose specifically of keeping those pills under wraps until Pfizer could release their COVID pill, which is out now. Um, So you'll have your shot and your pill. Totally fine. Whatever. Do what you want to do with your body. But, you know, when people see stuff like that, it's hard to not notice that, um, that this is a game that's being played for profit. And when people need the news to be a trusted source that can, you know, potentially save lives... Because imagine how how things would have fared differently if CNN had said, you know, uh, ivermectin does come in doses for humans. It's been used to treat uh, parasitic infections the world over. There's some evidence that's still being looked at as to whether or not this is good at fighting COVID. But, you know, it's there's been over a billion doses administered worldwide to people, and none of those people are dead uh, after taking ivermectin. So... You know, talk to your doctor about potentially using that if you if you get infected. Think of how many lives in hosp- lives could have been saved and potential hospitalizations could have been averted if the news actually did its fucking job and to, and told you about this thing in an honest way instead of running cover for its corporate sponsors until it was time. So to my mind, it can all it can all disappear. It can it can all go away and something new can take its place. A, a, a news organization that people can trust, which we're seeing now isn't an organization at all, but is rather uh, a dispersed, decentralized network of podcasts and, uh, you know, underground websites. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's the younger perspective that you bring. I, I'm not sure I see that. I, what I, I only see the final collapse of the mainstream media networks that I've grown up with. And I, I do see that that um, and I, I think that we should say to viewers that I have access to one of the finest media analytics services in the world. It would cost really about a hundred thousand dollars corporately per month, and some old friends of the past um, uh, make that available to me, and I'm very grateful to it uh, and to them. Uh, I, I don't think that we're ever getting back from the collapse of faith in in the mainstream media of our time right now. And I think that you could include Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, CBS, ABC, the NPR network, New York Times, WashPo, you know, and and many, many of the surviving regional newspapers. Um, Some of them are are still very good. I, I still believe in the Chicago Tribune because they were nice to me when I was an intern there as a young person. Um, but I think that we're looking at the end of a belief in, in corporate media, and I certainly think that Gen Z has no time for them whatsoever. And I don't know where people will really get a, a, a formulated idea of the news uh, you know, even in their local area. I'm often, you know, I hear all these sirens and, and gunshots sometimes around my place. Um, you know, I, not gunshots often, but sirens often. And I, I, I wonder how difficult it is to find out what's going on. And it's even more difficult to find out what's happening in the Las Vegas Valley at large, in, in real time, you have to usually wait, you know, 12 hours to get some sort of idea. And oftentimes stories just get, you know, that they don't really get treated. You think, well, wait a minute, I heard a five alarm fire here. Well, what was that about? You don't hear about it. And then we don't hear about a lot of things nationally. And then we certainly, as we last talked about, uh, we don't hear a lot of uh, things internationally. And we encouraged listeners to to check out international news bases. Major cities, you know, just a few around the world, just check out what's going on in Lisbon, Portugal, or uh, Honiara in, in the Solomon Islands, or, you know, 
the Melbourne age, you know, just just don't be confined to an American or North American framework because that's always going to be, you know, just limited by definition. But I wonder, I wonder if we have reached the point where we can no longer get any sense of what's going on. And I'm looking at, on my desk, I've got this really beautiful, it's red. It's, it's emergency red. And it's just this beautiful survival, tactical, all-purpose radio to catch the ghost radio signal if all things go down. You know, if there's anyone out there broadcasting, are you broad? And I and I can broadcast on it. I can plug in, you know. So it, it's a two-way radio, which is a beautiful idea. And I wonder if we have reached the end of a really interactive. Uh, you know, we we say we can you know like tweet, tweet, really tweet. That sounds like taking a shit to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just embarrassing. I'm not sure I want to do that in a public sense. I don't know if I want to tweet. Uh, I don't know if I want to post to Instagram anymore. And I'm worried about my Facebook posts. I only know be- that I only feel a little bit more comfortable there because I know that I'm really posting to a handful of people that do respond. So I, I, I'm cool with that for the moment. But now that it's become meta which is, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, it's the, it's the word for death as well as beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what's going on anymore. And I don't know if I want to be part of, of all of this. I mean, but we've got a great idea of how to change all this. We do have the mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, well, I think that basically... I think that once the internet was invented, I think that the news media <coughs> was in big, big trouble. I think that once this cat got out of the bag, um, we had a kind of glorious anar- anarchic internet for about 15 years. And what we're seeing now is is them trying to um, not adapt, but essentially get the bull under control right now. And I think that it's impossible to do as it is. So I think that whatever we end up seeing in the future will look completely different from the news of today. And um, I, I'm, I'm at the point where I don't really, um, I'm more upset by what I see on the news than by the idea of, of it not existing. Cause I think that as soon as it stops existing, I think it can be replaced with something better. Hopefully, hopefully. I mean, it might be naive to think that something quote unquote better could replace it but where we're at now is just so bogged down with uh corporate influence and you know and misinformation that uh you know good good riddance i'd uh <clears throat> what sort I'd of like shithead wants to... to put a cat in a bag yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> Right. I mean, really. I mean, yeah, let the fucking cat out of the bag because you're a fucking idiot, moron, psychopath for putting the cat in the bag to begin with. Exactly. You know, what about that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, people who put cats in bags usually throw those bags in the river. Exactly so, right. And um, they deserved the drowning cage themselves. Absolutely. Let's bring that back. Moving into our middle segment of the show. I'm enjoying this. This is good. This is good. We've got some good stuff for this middle point. Chris, you sent me a note about language and the construction of time. Uh, This relates to what we were talking about last episode, about how there is this sort of discrepancy between the way that language can be used as a communicative tool for uh, stabilizing relationships and creating responsibility amongst members of a tribe or a small group, but also how when taken in isolation, language can sort of mutate and grow tentacles and take on life of its own. And when that happens, it can occasionally be something that is actually very dangerous. And I thought that you 
relating it to the conception of time and how we have created this thing that doesn't actually exist uh, was right on the money. So I want to hear you expand upon that. Expand upon time. Okay, well, I think that what happened with language was a beautiful and, and terrible schism between enormous possibility, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we stepped off that trail. You know, I mean, if anyone has ever been in a jungle situation or, or just in, in a wilderness situation or just in an unfamiliar situation, you know, you, you could just take a different path to your quick mart or 7-Eleven around your corner. Just step outside your comfort zone for one moment. And you realize that, oh, the path is not clear, mm-hmm. which is the nature of paths, which is the nature of the human story. And language is the invention of an ability to manage the unknown. And mm-hmm. we had a program for that once. We really did. And it was a balance between the shamanistic, what we spoke about in the last episode, the unspeakable visions of the individual. For whatever reason, some rare individuals within small groups, let's face it, we all started in small groups. We did not, you know, we weren't 7.8 billion people, you know, 100,000 years ago. You know, we weren't. And, and our, our whole mechanisms of socialization, language, intimacy, and involvement, you know, just don't work against that. I mean, think about your, your, your mechanisms of intimacy. Really? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're, you're going to make love to 7.8 million people? No, you're going to make love to one person. So we, we all started on a much, much smaller scale. And we've blown this thing up big time through a lot of interesting reasons and and technology, medical health, uh, luck, you know, a lot of reasons. Um, But our core psychological basis remains very small and really interestingly intimate in in a social sense. And I think that what, what happened was that we lost the ability to deal with the shamanistic view that the individual who was a dreamer, a visionary, someone who for whatever reason, charismatic power, physical strength, or just cleverness, managed to present as a guidepost, both to the past, to the deep cosmology of of the present, and Mm -hmm. to a potential future for the clan, the tribal group, you know, someone who is, I mean, we, we, this is a world phenomenon. You know, it's not just, no one's making this up. This is not a Native American phenomenon. It's not a West African or East African or South African or South American or Asian. It's a world phenomenon. We have had shaman figures around the world as global guides to some sort of integration of eternity, magic, and also social reality in the moment. I mean, these have been very practical people. You know, they haven't been just, you know, they're not, they have never been uh, seen as as schizophrenic nutcases. They're actually Mm -hmm. very practical people. Look at Black Elk, you know, Lakota Soup. You know, I mean, there's nothing mentally ill about that it's about Mm -hmm. linking um and david has talked about um in in indigenous australians we've talked about indigenous new guinea and and solomon melanesian people uh we've looked at a lot of this and our our the one of the overall points of view is that before all the indigenous people who still are living remotely and and do not want to join Western or Eastern civilization uh, before we destroy them all. Maybe we should listen to what it is that they resist about us. Uh, but I think the, the point is that their view is very practical. 
it was it was merging a dream time eternity possibility of Jungian Western terms uh, view with a civic public social uh, you know keep your spouse happy keep on good terms with your neighbor level of ethical behavior these were very practical people that's why they survived <laughs> you know right yeah no this is very interesting because you can look at it in terms of you know you you say in your note that you know language invented time which is a phrase that i really enjoy and what language did in the context of where we're living now is language invented uh times that you have to be at certain places to perform certain tasks mm. right because you know the bigwigs in charge of making sure all the little ants are moving along in the farm the way that they're supposed to decided you know we have to get this magic under control and do this but what you're saying is that a shaman is a is like a deep time clock basically yeah uh, well said and, david well said and and not only are they connecting this ethereal spirit world to the world of uh, common you know um, interactions between between uh, families and friends and you know the kind of the civic structure of of the society but they're also <clears throat> in a way they're they're the tribe's uh memory in a sense they're they're the people who who are able to put things into a greater context you know this is everything that came before this is what will be and so you know Go about your day accordingly, because we're at this point astrologically, uh, in terms of the weather. Uh, you know, te temporal as a word has the same root as temperature. Mm. You know, mm. so in in a way, they're all they're all almost um, sort of deep time. <laughs> I said deep time clocks, but they're almost like deep time weathermen in a sense. Um, so I think I think that their use of of language, and if you jump to the to the to present day or close to the present day, you know we had people like this, like you've mentioned Terence McKenna, uh, these kind of thinkers who acted as people who were able to contextualize the past and also the future, so that when you walked out of one of those um, one of those monologues at Esalen. You had a sense of where you were spatio-temporally and also spatio-temperaturally. That's probably not a word, but you get, you know what I mean? Well, like that, that for was me as a malaria uh, carrier for life, that means a great mm -hmm. deal because the moment I get a little bit uh, high temperature, I, I, I get a whole bunch of, of, of physical, psychological reactions. And it could just be because, you know, it's nothing to do with my physical health at all. It has to do with maybe the temperature of the room or the fabric of clothing I'm wearing, you know. And I get really anxious about that. So I think that's a really good example of how psychology relates to physicality directly. And, and this is something that you and I really pursue, you know, generally across the board. I mean... Everything is physical and everything is psychological, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if you're not feeling good, if your son's not feeling good, if your wife's not feeling good, if your mother-in-law's not feeling good, I mean, you got a problem, you know? Mm -hmm. you got a fucking mm -hmm. problem, you know? Uh, mm. You know, and, and that's just the nature of life. It, it, but all of that is both physical and social and psychological magical, you know? Yeah, and that's in that the the shaman acts as the as the locus point to put into words uh, all of these things that we're that we're talking about, and that's why we need public shamans to come back. Every group, every friend group, needs somebody who's just far out. There's this great TV series called Atlanta that was uh, put together by by Donald Glover, which. Um, it's awesome because, you know, it's a crime drama about three struggling rappers in Atlanta, but it has all of these Lynchian surreal elements to it. But one guy in the in the trio is this sort of mystical 
dude who who kind of speaks almost in these strange um you know uh, buddha-like phrases you know he's he's like he's on his own wavelength right and i think of that character when i think of every group needing uh, a shaman in order to sort of place them within time and to not be stuck uh in a perpetual sunday or monday or tuesday or wednesday on and on and on right um you you need to break out of the this structure of time and language that we have and get into this sort of greater uh you know flow that that we that we're away from right now well you know i think that it it, it might be time to um introduce Goethe's four ages of the spirit because i think that these work uh across the board i i you know i, I was out driving around earlier and there's uh, an apartment complex in, in central las vegas called the purple monster and there always always many police there and uh, I've known uh, four of my really key students grew up in that complex, and it, it's very hard going. Um, I think you could say that the South Bronx, parts of East Harlem, uh, many parts of, of Chicago, and South Central LA, you know, would be maybe more challenging. But you know, how much more challenging? I mean, how many more deaths do you? You know, how many more gurneys do you have to roll out before you say this is hardcore, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I, I was driving past there, and I, you know, it was beautiful twilight, you know, and, uh, but I, I, I think of, of Goethe's four ages of the spirit. And here they are. The mythic age, the religious age, the philosophical age and the public age, which he goes on to describe, and this is my own translation from German. I've worked hard to have some idea of German. I'm, I'm very poor, but I, I, I stand by this. A naturalistic prose age out of which God himself could not generate another world. And I'm afraid that we are in that phase now with a lot of bread and circuses and big tits and flashy video and, you know, a lot of nonsense, really. Um, but I think out of which God himself could not generate another world. I mean, I think if you threw in another few pronouns there just to make sure that our trans people are happy, um, you, you would get the idea, wouldn't you? I mean, we're, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're at the rope bridge where the rope bridge is gone, you know, in a New Guinea yeah. sense. It's been washed out. It's not there. So we're going to have to make a new rope bridge, which is a really Absolutely. tense thing. And I've seen that happen in New Guinea, and i got to tell you, it's, it's fucking intense. You know what they do? Yeah, well, they, they start shooting arrows over the water with ropes attached, you know? And, and mm -hmm. people die. People die making a, a single rope bridge. And they just accept mm. that that's going to happen. You know, it's not like some engineering thing and Joe Biden's infrastructure plan is going to be all fine and everything's cool. No, they accept that people are going to die. To make a bridge across a river, a raging river like the Markham River, uh, you know, and I just don't have that kind of, I mean, I think that kind of courage is just insane. But I think that we need to get back to courage and we need to get back to the idea that uh, we are at a real crisis point of, of media uh, deceptiveness and media lack of credulity and, and lack of credibility and also a lack of mythic power anymore i mean i i went to the movies the other night david and i just thought you know wait a minute what would david say if he was with me right now and he'd go well you know 
Well, first of all, pass me some more popcorn for God's sakes, because this is so boring. <laughs> but yeah. it would be like, yeah, there's all this mythology thrown up on the screen, on the wall, like mud. And yet none of it has any real meaning. None of it has any balls, any sincerity, any heart. It's just all corporate product about really, well, you're special. You matter. Find your, you know, you know, just be good and, 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 and realize that no matter how ugly and how marginalized you may feel, you, you still have a presence in this culture. You know, it's like, well, maybe you should just actually think, well, I should maybe lose, you know, 40 pounds and, you know, try to go with some people who kind of like me, you know? What about that? Yeah. You know, what yeah, about that? Yeah, what about that? What about that? Indeed. No, absolutely. I think that's a good place to put it off for now. I, I think we um, have established some very clear things, which is that you have to find uh, worldviews that make sense to you in your own material reality. You have to shun corporate cronyism at every uh, point that you can. I think that we have to get people involved with, uh, with with shamanism, get somebody who can actually speak that language. There's a language being spoken in my room right now. It's a, it's a baby. Actually. Yeah, Crying. Gus. But Mr. Gus. Uh, but on that note, I would like to move into the, se- the final segments of the show, the practical tip and the dream. Well, you missed the important point because I really, you know, I always said Vada Blue told me to switch it up, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. you've got uh, an immediate creative challenge, which you've got to do on the spot, live. You have no time. Let's do it. You have no time now. Always mm-hmm. change it up, Vada Blue said. Always <laughs> change it up. Okay. We used to have great newspapers. I uh, was an intern in high school at the Chicago Tribune back when it was a really good newspaper. So I want you to imagine your life is a newspaper. And in real time, you're going to get a few seconds to do this. You have to say what your headline is. If your life were the subject, what's the headline for the day? What's the lead paragraph? Real time. As far as current news stories or about my own life? Your own life. Your own life. If, if your life were the subject of the newspaper, uh-huh. what's the major headline right today? The major headline today would be uh, man, man shuttles infant through hail-blasted, post-apocalyptic landscape. And <laughs> the, the lead would be about um, gangs of feral children that live in the aqueducts. Uh, in Norman, Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma, feral children have been scurrying through the aqueducts, peeping in windows and stealing bikes out of people's backyards. Through this landscape walks J. David Osborne, author and father with his son strapped into his $50 stroller. As they walk past the makeshift homeless camps that used to be playgrounds and homes that used to have people who cared, they are accosted by the group of children who want to know where they live and if they have any bicycles in their backyard. (laughs) <laughs> that's it <laughs> well that's as good as it gets and I hope people listen and, and really appreciate that you know I, I, I've actually had um, a lot of chances to be involved with, with different collaborators over the years and, and I really have had some great collaborators some of them aren't here and I, I really appreciate that uh, David is one of them because <laughs> he just keeps rising to the challenge and I hope you hear that it's just exciting and uh, there's nothing more exciting than than minds rising to collaborative challenge and if you live as long as i have and through as weird shit as i have you will really really appreciate that that is the turning point in the world you know some of the greatest people and 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 you know the indigenous ideas 
we move at the heart of the world. You know, that's the idea. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. That's mm -hmm. what people say on the 141st uh, Meridian East. You know, they say that with no clothes and with stone axes. We move at the heart of the world. Uh, what a great idea that is. And I, I'm really proud that my uh, partner in crime here does, in fact, move at the heart of the world. He lives in Oklahoma, but um, I think he keeps proving himself at the heart of the world. Very, Heartland very cool. USA. Heartland USA. Well, thank you very much. I, pre I really enjoyed that challenge. Um, looking forward to more of them. The spur of the moment stuff is... Jab, jab, intense. fight, jab, intense. jab, back, We gotta go, jab. we gotta go. Yep. What am I supposed to say? Oh, no, Chris, I need a little more time. There no, is no time. No, there is no There more is no time. time. It's November 7th, 2021. You don't have any more time. That's right. That's right. Okay. okay. All right, we're ready for our tip. Are we? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, here's my tip. Um, and this is something that is in my textbook, which is now out on all the major channels, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Powell's. I hope you will look it up. It's called A, a, a Guide to um, Creative Writing in the Imagination, published by Rutledge Press. It's a little bit pricey, $42.95, but I'm trying to make some money. And, you know, it's, it's a big textbook, you know. You know I, I, I didn't decide on that retail price, so... But I think you'll find it, what I hope you will find is that it is a model based on the, the perennial classic of drawing on the right-hand side of the brain, which is a visual arts book, which has made an enormous amount of money and influenced and inspired tremendous numbers of people in a visual arts sense. I have had a model, uh, and I have a model for what we're, Dave and I are hoping to do with our book club, with our first title of Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees by Lawrence Weschler. I'm ready to rock and roll in that. So, you know, this is a big deal. I, I, I put a lot of time into it. This is teaching and writing exercises that have come forward across uh, China, Indonesia, New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, uh, Australia, many parts of North America, um, so, and Mexico. So I, I, I hope you'll dig it. It's, it's been a long time in the making. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to overcook the brownies, but, you know, it's sometimes, uh, sometimes, you know, as, as, as they say in, in, in the Solomon Islands, some things take 40,000 years, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, just get with that program. All right, so here's my practical tip. And this is an idea that I, I, I pursue uh, very, very forcefully in the textbook. Uh, I want you to think about writing an aphorism every day. An aphorism is a, a, you know, a pithy statement, a kind of proverb, uh, you know, a, a real risk of cliché. Mm -hmm. That's my important point. That's my important point. Uh, it is actually a risk of cliché. Uh, it, it's a poetic device, it's a rhetorical device, it's a philosophical exercise. It, it, it's a bit of muscle, you know? It's a bit of muscle. It's, a bit, it, it's like, yeah, I got some balls, I got some strength, I got some uh, experience in life, I'm going to lay this down. And to do one a day is, uh, is a really good exercise. And sometimes, look, you have to embarrass yourself. You know, we mm -hmm. all go to the toilet and wipe our butts mm -hmm. and we, we hope that we don't get seen by other people doing that, you know, but we all have to risk a little bit creatively. So I want to put forward some uh, of the aphorisms that I do every day as a discipline. Sometimes they're complete failures, you know, have the courage to fucking fail. You know, if you don't have any courage, well, what are you doing? You know, really, have some courage at least to fail to yourself. So here are some of a of, of few of mine that I, I, I do about 10 every day. I, you know, they don't always good. Some of them are terrible, you know? Some of them are terrible. But the, the aphorism is a great literary Heraclitus, Kafka, you know? 
some great people have been involved in, in aphorisms. So here are some of mine. If I were the only one person I really knew, I would be concerned. <laughs> it's enormously hard to see the beginning of a pattern. Squalor starts calmly. What do some people want? They want to feel as if they can do whatever they want. The society of the planet is the only valid one now. You know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. not important yeah. how, how profound, you know, it, it, what it matters is that you're, you're, you've got some guts to risk being cliched in the search of profundity, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just have some fucking guts and yeah. get out there and write an aphorism every day. Just take the risk. One little, you know, just one thought. Just get it down, put it in a journal. I recommend handwriting it, but it doesn't matter. But just get it down and and try to be a part of, of a great world conversation because this is one of the greatest art forms there has ever been. Excellent. Might be your best one yet. That's a good practical tip. What do you got for us on Thank the dream you. front? Tell us tell us about your dreams. Okay. Well, you know, I really do love the color yellow as a painter. I really do. I, I respond to all of the range of colors of yellow. Uh, when I worked for a major paint company, I sold in a, a, a brand name for uh, a color called Barn Owl, which was in the yellow register. But the other night, I found myself inhabited by about uh, sort of three quarters the size of a soccer ball. Uh, a free-floating uh, unit, like an Alexa kind of mm -hmm. unit, shaped exactly like a weirdly yellow, an uncomfortably yellow, outside my range of friendly yellow uh, units that looked exactly like the Death Star from mm. Star Wars. And here's an example, I think, of how dreams kind of build on a story platform. Uh, anyone who knows uh, the, uh, the Coover story, The Enormous Radio, which I think is one of the great stories. It's pre-Twilight Zone. It's about a couple in New York who, whose radio begins to uh, reveal to them the secrets and the intimate details of their neighbors. I think it's a, it's a really wonderful. Uh, it was published originally in the New Yorker, when the New Yorker was actually doing something good. And this device uh, is free-floating in my uh, condo unit, and it is telling me about a lot of the secrets of my neighbors which some of which I really, really do not want to hear at all. I'm very, I'm just, I'm, I'm very alarmed by And, and then there was a moment. I mean, actually, mostly I'm, I'm really alarmed. I'm really alarmed. I, I'm scared. Uh, and I, I, I do have some neighbors down below who actually do worry me. There are like eight of them now. Uh, they're like ex-convicts just building up a halfway house sort of thing. And it's, it's not good. But out of all of the stuff that was freaking me out, there was a voice. And it was my, it's my old Indian neighbor. He's returned. Uh, his wife of 68 years died. And he was left alone. 
and he moved in with his son for a little bit, but he, he, he kept his place. And now he's back. He's back. You know, mm -hmm. at, I don't know, Jesus, 90 million years old, whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. the important thing is his wife is dead, you know? And this weird yellow uh, Alexa floating thing that is telling me about stories that I don't really want to know about my neighbors and is making me really anxious about the social climate of my environment. What it says about him is how he prays and talks to his dead wife, mm -hmm. you know, after all the years. And that's the voice that I reckon is coming through. And what I remember when I wake up, I think, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of fucking, you know, evil people or just stupid people or just, you know, just ordinary people. But then there's also someone praying and talking to a wife of like 67 years, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just thought, I'm going to have a shower and go walk five miles, you know? <laughs>